Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 131. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier on in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Doing great, John. As usual, heavily caffeinated. We're both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And don't forget to smash the subscribe button. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, so uh, this week we're starting a new uh, two-parter, interviewing uh, Jonathan Frappier. Yes, indeed. Jonathan's been around the block for sure. Several years of IT experience, and we're going to walk the path from how he got into the field all the way to current state. And this part one, I think, tells the story of how he started off and used some interesting experience in teaching to approach the way he dealt with other people. Yeah, I totally understand how you uh, uh, vibed with the uh, teacher turned technologist. That that made, makes sense. Uh, I think the, the thing that, you know, matched my experience was the, you know, not having anybody paying for certifications and paying for your own as a way to break into kind of like that, uh, the, the larger stage of, of IT. And uh, he had some interesting things too with uh with blogging, but um, rather than giving it all away right now, let's actually get into the episode. Uh, part one of our conversation with Jonathan Frappier. Jonathan Frappier, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please? Sure. So uh, I've been in IT technology somewhere around the 20-year mark, depending on uh, what you want to consider my first tech job. And right now, I'm primarily focused on supporting applications for that are both customer-facing and for our internal teams uh, running on AWS. Okay. Now, what made you want to go into this systems administration, engineering type career path in the first place? It was about 3 a.m. my sophomore year in college. I had a uh, professor who, when I walked in for the first day of class, he handed me the final and said, I'll see you on the last day of class. Just go do this. And as a college student would, I waited until the night before to try to do my final project. And... uh when it wasn't compiling around 3 a.m., I said, this programming stuff is for the birds. I'm, I'm out. Like, what else can I do in tech? <laughs> and uh, landed in the, the, the sysadmin world and, and have worked my way up since then. Now, you made a really interesting transition because you actually came from education. Sort of. So that was the – so I was teaching – part-time where I had gotten my bachelor's while I was working through my master's degree. And so I finished my master's about 2007. That started about 2007. So I sort of picked that 
uh, a couple of years ago as the, the cutoff for where I wanted my resume to start because I was actually starting to run into probably not quite ageism, but I, you know, when I was interviewing before I started this job, I would get the, oh, well, you're too senior to come, you know, work in this sysadmin role. And it's like, well, maybe, but I've never done AWS before. So what does the last 20 years really matter? But I had a, a large number of hiring managers who would, who would look at 20 years, 18 years of experience and be like, oh, well, you can't do this. We only want 10 years of experience. And I was like, well, I can make it look that way. <laughs> so. Uh, my first tech job was actually uh, was in 2000, uh, just after uh, the Y2K fund. So I missed I missed out on that. But yeah, just decided to cut off those first uh, seven or eight years or so from the resume. And lo and behold, after I did that, I, I was able to uh, get my current job. That's actually really interesting. Like I, I want to probe that a little bit. Just the idea sure. of having too much experience to, to get, you know, even kind of the initial rounds. Um, that's just a, a fascinating thing. You know, it, having been doing this for 20 years now, it, it's things that I did then things even before, you know, my, my first real computer job was at CompUSA. And honestly, it might've been one of the most valuable jobs that I had in terms of my career. But when you're going through an interview process and, and there's some gatekeeping going on, you start to learn what are the things that a hiring manager might see as a red flag. You know, they had a bad experience at CompUSA. I'm not going to hire you. All right. Well, CompUSA is coming off the resume. Oh, well, you've been, you've been in technology since 2000. How could I possibly hire you for a job that we only think we need five years of experience for? Well, unless you're still running NT40, and you're asking me to migrate to Windows 2000 and Active Directory, that first five years wasn't really relevant to what we're doing today. So uh, they were certainly helpful in terms of understanding technology, how different technologies interacted. But I can apply those same concepts that I learned then to just about any other job. So I took the uh, I took the shot that I look too old on paper. So let's see if I can make myself look younger. Now, does, do you feel like that works like in other parts of your life when you when you were able to do that? Did people just treat you differently? Like um, like uh, they started carding you at the grocery store and uh, or was that just just for the, the job search? Yeah. Was that before the gift certificate to the spa for all the facials and revitalization? Uh, yeah. You know, that that was certainly part of it, you know, to to, to look the part of the. Uh, only 10 year person. I mean, I guess the, the hairs is kind of a giveaway now too. Um, so I got to keep it, uh, I got to keep it smooth when I walk in for the interview. So you don't see the receding hairline. Cause then it's just obvious. <laughs> too funny. But, so it, you also mentioned just this like idea of, you know, um, doing some uh, teaching, like while you're completing your, your master's degree, like were you teaching stuff like that in that kind of, IT or CIS field, or were you actually teaching the same stuff that made you want to quit um, programming? So it was in the, so I was doing some CIS and some just general like entry-level computer classes for incoming freshmen. Uh, so I was doing, doing both of those and that desire, I guess, sort of stemmed from when I was going, when I started college 
and having some really good teachers who seemed to get it and some really bad teachers who was just like, I'm paying how much money for you to be not engaged at all with me and not seem to care at all about my education. So that sort of drove an interest for me in wanting to give back and teach and, and help people as, as best I can, especially when, when the first opportunity that was uh, to teach was a class, it was just Microsoft office. So it was students from that were accounting majors that were culinary art majors that, you know, nothing to do really with computer science. And, uh, you know, those are the classes I actually probably remember the most. And I can still remember, you know, students who bailed on the classes because they didn't think they would be able to figure out Excel. And, and I remember this one person I pleaded with her. I was like, no, don't, don't quit. Like, I'll get you through this. You're in accounting. Like you need to learn this stuff. Like, like I'll help you figure it out. Like I was that passionate about being a good teacher for others ha- coming from classes where I had poor teachers. I don't want to like fail this person. Uh, she still ended up leaving the class, which to this day still sort of bums me out. But um, I, I remember some others. There's one person was a paralegal and didn't understand why as a paralegal major, they needed to use Microsoft office at the time I was actually working. It was one of the jobs that got cut off of LinkedIn and cut off the resume uh, but I was at a small consulting company and we were working with a ton of law firms. So I was like, let me tell you something about law firms. And, you know, that person stuck with it, uh, passed the class. So, you know, I hope she's off somewhere, you know, doing good. And how did that, how did the experience teaching and that passion for wanting people to do well, how did that translate into what you were doing at the consulting firm? I think, uh, I think a large part of our jobs as technologists is educating other people on why we're doing things, why, you know, we ask you to change your password or why we ask you to use password managers or have expiring passwords or have MFA. A CFO may not fully understand the technology aspect. So, a large part of our job, if we're going to be successful is being able to deliver that technical information in a way back to the business so that they support what we're trying to do to keep the company running, to keep it secure, uh, to address new issues as they come up. Well, why do you have to shut down, you know, the exchange server in the middle of a hurricane? Well, because we didn't pay for the, uh, uh, the generator when we moved into this office. So, you know, I've got a couple hours of runtime and in the middle of a hurricane, I'm not driving here in case the power goes out. So, uh, you know, you do the best you can at any given point in time and just keep on trying to teach people. And I think what you're talking about is this idea of meeting the person where they are and understanding what they know and not looking down on them because they don't know, but just trying to help them get to a point of competence at whatever level in the business or the classroom they are. Yeah, exactly. And I mentioned my first computer job, and this is while I was in school, was at CompUSA. And that, I think, really set me up to be able to ask questions to different types of people to gauge where they were from an understanding perspective you know, am I teach? Am I going to go right into, you know, geek specs, or we're going to talk about solitaire and Microsoft Works? Uh, 
because that's what you're trying to to understand how this is going to help you. So, you know, being at a in a retail environment, you know, 40, 50, 60 people I might interact with in a, in a single day. And I needed to go from, you know, that conversation of somebody who was walking in and, and was on par with us in the store and knew, uh, I'll date myself, you know, megahertz and megabytes of RAM. And, you know, why do I, why do I want a, an eight megabyte memory card instead of a, a 16 megabyte memory card and, or a video card? So, uh, you know, I'd talk to those people who understood the, the technical bits and then instantly flip over to the people that were buying their first computer. And it was like, I don't know, somebody told me to get a computer. Why? What, what am I going to do with this? That's um, a lot of that. I, I really appreciate that um, view into being able to change levels, levels of complexity and, and levels of like, you know, technical acumen um, with the audience. and. You know, being able to calibrate down is one thing. I, I assume that over time, you also had to learn to calibrate in like different directions, right? Like, um, you know, business people and, and management, you know, sometimes don't care about technology solutions. They care about how, you know, the technology solution that you're, you know, trying to pitch them like relates to the business issues that they're facing. And that's a different type of uh, calibration. Yeah, exactly. There's a, uh... I've not worked with many CFOs who are interested in how many gigs of RAM were in a server, but most of them wanted to know that the accounting team was going to be able to make it through end of month and end of year without it going down. That's where their concern was. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's I I, I want to you know before we move on past um, your education uh, too far, I, I want to go back to it a little bit just because. You know, I think oftentimes when we talk to people about how they got into IT, like very, very few of them had a chance to actually get an, like a college, you know, program that was focused on it. And so whenever I see like management information systems or, you know, uh, CIS, like on, on somebody's like, you know, background, I'm always curious about, you know, how that program was and, um, how it you know prepared them for the real world of IT. So do you can you take a moment to maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the program for me, um, I don't think uh, the school I was at really prepared me for going out into the real world uh, in terms of being able to go out and be a programmer. Like where we left off in in C plus plus and Visual C plus plus, like like. Most of the, the people at that time uh, in the school I was at, you know, we were getting tripped up on, you know, basic arrays. So, I mean, I, I didn't walk out of school with any ability to really walk into uh, uh, any size company and program anything, uh, you know, maybe some uh, maybe doing some support. So I, I, I struggled for a couple of years in terms of what I wanted to do. Uh, the, the dot com boom picked me up. I think, and got me into my first official sort of help desk desktop support role, which I think was a an easy transition out of that retail experience. So, so that's uh, knowing I I didn't want to spend many three a.m.s trying to figure out why my code wouldn't compile, and uh, giving up on, on on that. You know, it all sort of came together nicely for me. Now, when you were in school, 
before you started to teach and before you got the retail job, had you done any tutoring of other people to get a feel for that true teaching in academia type interaction? Or was it more like it came natural to you? It, uh, I think it came natural. For, for the most part, I hadn't done any formal teaching before I approached my advisor and said, hey, you know, teaching something that I'm interested in, I want to give it a shot. He, uh, he clearly thought I could do it or didn't have anyone else to backfill that, that particular class that semester. I'm not sure which, uh, but it, either shot, he gave me a chance. It worked out well, you know, good feedback from the students and uh, was able to keep doing it for a couple of years. How about that transition um, from kind of contractor implementation guy to a little bit more of a formal, you know, systems engineering um, IT position? Um, what was that transition like? How how did that happen? I was I was looking for a tech job. Uh, didn't actually wasn't too concerned with what it was. I, I knew that I had some aptitude uh in this in this arena uh so the company that i got my first tech job at i had actually applied to be a web developer uh it was somewhat interesting to me uh no formal background you know mostly self-study picking up books at barnes and noble or or uh you know there there was no uh like code academies or or anything like that to or or boot camps that like you can join now so mostly self-taught the you know, I think mostly thanks to just the the lack of tech people around 2000. I mean, I was getting phone calls and people were trying to throw me $100,000 to be an exchange admin. I'm like, I've never touched exchange. They're like, we don't care. We need one. And I'm like, yeah, I knew enough or I was scared enough maybe uh, not to jump on, on one of those jobs. But the, you know, this company uh, needed a help desk person. They didn't think I was the right fit for the web developer job. So decided to take that and was off to the races from there. And did you kind of pursue help desk and, and maybe that transition to, you know, system administration kind of that same way, like uh, going to Barnes and Noble, or was there more of a, a formal process of, of training for that? We were, we were a smaller, the company was smaller. We were maybe 500 people, give or take uh, four or five people in the IT department. So it was me and one other person as sort of the help desk desktop support. We had a network admin, network manager. So I was fortunate to get to be exposed to a lot of different products or projects and technology because of that. So I got to learn about networking and networking administration so that, you know, if we were expanding to a new floor and we had a rack some switches and add some VLANs. I was working with the network administrator. If there was a, a department that needed support for some new process they were implementing, I would work with the IT manager, who was my direct manager, uh, on gathering business requirements and understanding what they were trying to do. So I had a lot of good experience out of that first job because we were a smaller company. There, there weren't really any silos uh, that you might run into at a really giant company where, you know, here, here's your run book, do these 10 steps every time and then hand it off. I, I had, if somebody came to me with a problem, I had to figure out how to fix it. And, you know, 
I could yell over to my cue ball, the network administrator and say, Hey, Bob, I need some, uh, I need some help here. This one's over my head and he'd help me out and was able to, you know, retain that knowledge and, and appreciate the different intricacies of different types of technology jobs, whether it's a help desk person, a network admin, a database admin. Uh, we got to work closely with, with that web development team that I didn't get the job in, uh, but made a lot of good friends in that team as well. So really, uh, really, really set me up with some good experience. It sounds like you benefited from an environment where for the organization, it was important to teach people about solutions that are a little bit over their head rather than just handing it off to, you know, the person who could um, maybe just run the ball the last 10 yards or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, uh, you know, maybe because it was a smaller group, a smaller company, we, we didn't have, you know, there wasn't a team of network admins or database admins. So we had to be able to chip in and, and help on other projects uh, coming out of the desktop support stuff. Uh, one of my friends that I worked with at CompUSA, he started looking into like his MCSE and, and, and going down the certification path. So I was studying with him as well, uh, which allowed me to get on the project to migrate our NT4 domain to Active Directory, which led to my MCSE, which led, I don't, I don't want to yada yada my way all the way to the end of the end of the show. So <laughs> I'll save some more of the steps for later on. I find that people who are, this is just my observation, it seems like people who really like to teach also really like to learn, or they are the ones who are just, let me learn this stuff, and the environment where you get to touch all the things and kind of learn many, many different things and kind of decide what you like is optimal. That's just what I think. Yeah, if if you don't like to learn if you're somebody that wants to be told, here's the 10 steps to do and doesn't want to do anything else beyond that, technology is probably going to be a struggle for you because it, it it's always changed fast, but the rate at which it's changing now is, is pretty bananas. Uh, you know, if when I got into uh, virtualization and like VMware and vSphere and stuff like that, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, this will this will be great. You know, Active Directory was around for, you know, eight, 10 years. You could you could have laid a pretty good career just being an AD admin, you know, in in VMware. Be, once it became super, super popular, you could see, you know, just from the, the company perspective, how they were also looking at what was next and how to branch out. It went from not just server virtualization, but into, well, we can do this with desktops. We can do this on the network side. Uh, we can continue just getting down into the virtualizing every level of an environment and it, they just keep expanding and expanding and expanding what you can virtualize and, and how you can do things through software instead of relying on, on hardware to do it. So it just keeps getting changing faster and faster. So if you don't like to learn, uh, you might want to figure out a way to enjoy learning. Yeah, and it's not that we're saying you can't learn if you're in a if you're in one of those silos where, you know, this is the sphere of work that you have. There's still a lot to master and learn in that area and I'm sure there are some adjacencies you're going to get to explore by working with those other teams, but when you are in that small environment and you're responsible for all the things, you got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You just you just own it. Yeah. 
the the wide range of experience is good, but there's also benefits on those in those bigger environments where you are siloed. So I think one of my downfalls actually for almost my entire 20 year career is because I started in that smaller environment. The super giant companies didn't want to touch me because I wasn't, I didn't know every single flag for how to create a new LUN on an EMC array. I knew how to do it. I didn't, you know, these four flags, I know I've got to set them. I don't care about learning how deep they actually go. I know I need them and that's to the level I care because I have to go get this application working now once I provision my new LUNs. So it became hard to to break into the larger companies because you weren't super, super deep on just one specific or two, two or three specific things. That's an interesting problem to have. I can, I can certainly understand that. I also think that maybe um, that's like short-sighted organizations. <laughs> that's all I can think of. Like, you know, just because like those, like that kind of specialty without knowing those things without documentation, like, is if you're selecting for that, you're selecting for like someone who's so deep that it might be difficult for them to change. And this is really the wrong time in history to not be able to change. You know, like it, the joke I always make is like at a certain point in time, like my one of the big values I had to my organization was that I knew how to, you know, terminate my own cat five ends. And like that skill is so lacks value to the point where it is no longer done, you know, in like domestically, right? It is completely offshore now. So, you know, over time, like those skills, like within organizations, like they have to recognize that those skills are going to change and, and selecting for something that deep just seems really silly to me. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Maybe I'm biased. <laughs> um, I remember when I was interviewing for the for the job I have now, you know, a lot of the companies, I don't know if this was, they got these questions off of a, like, interview site because they were, you know, geeks, not managers or not people focused. Uh, the number of times I was asked, well, how do you count the number of files in a Linux directory? Like, I don't think I have enough fingers and toes to, to count how many times I was asked that and... It got to the point where I, I, what I wanted to say was, how many times are you counting the number of files in a directory? Like, is that what I'm going to be doing when I come here? Because it's not what it said in the job description, but you seem really intent on getting the answer for that, uh, this random question that quite honestly, if I was going to do it, I wouldn't be logging into a system and running commands to do it. I would have like my monitoring system be doing that or, or something else. But yeah, I got that question an awful lot. It was kind of weird. You count them one at a time, don't you? <laughs> yeah. One. How many times? Oh, there's 10 on the screen, and then every time I scroll, it moves the entire page. So I'll get there eventually. Hopefully there's not a lot of files. They probably wouldn't have liked that answer. Yeah. I've only walked out of a couple interviews in my life, but that uh, there, there was a lot more I wanted to walk out on. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where you know the only reason to ask you know questions like that is you know how well... Do you know the ins and outs of like this, like, you know, fairly obscure? Like, I mean, really, the, ultimately what they're asking is, how well do you know uh, Unix command line? Like, how, how familiar and comfortable yeah. with you 
uh, with it, are you? And like, there's probably better ways to figure that out than asking like random, like, how do you, you know, pipe this command to this command to this command? Like, you know, how, do, you know, what, what is that serving? You know, grip, yeah. and then something after that. Well, I'm not going to try to solve it. Like, you know, I'm sure there's people screaming into yeah, their. Yeah. We uh, won't solve it live. Into their phones or onto their, you know, computers about, you know, you know, whatever version of uh, Unix that they happen to be on has like a account flag for you know LS or whatever, right? But um, it's like a that that's not the point, right? Like the point is, um, yeah, you know, like they're looking for this like you know special like uh password right like you know the you know maybe what they're just looking for you to do is say ls you know <laughs> right and then you know yeah. wonder aloud if there's a flag or pipe to the count commander you know whatever you know like the, it's just so um specific right that um there's got to be a better way to do that but you know when you're maybe an engineer you don't know how to ask that question and also like is the person like a person who can learn how to do that like fairly quickly if they don't know how to do that right now and is is that really the core competency that they're looking for is like command line familiarity with like a specific like you know uh flavor of unix or is it something else it's probably something else but maybe not I think this begs a deeper question because what I thought of was, does this mean that I should always be developing a deep specialty in something, even though I may be a generalist, in order to get that gig at the bigger companies? If you, I, I don't think it could ever hurt to be super deep on one or two things because I I think at that point you can walk into just about any company, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a consulting company, whether it's a, a small business or a large enterprise. If you know every Cisco firewall switch in command and can set that thing up blind, you'll find a job somewhere. Uh, because there's plenty of companies out there that need to deploy those things every day and troubleshoot them every day. So if, if you love networking uh, and, and that's something that just sticks in your brain, then absolutely, you know, stay deep on it, stay up to date with it. If you're somebody that loves uh, Linux, you know, and, and you can memorize those commands. I, I always tell uh, when I was interviewing, I would talk to the hiring manager and be like, listen, I'm not a walking man page. Like I, I don't have every flag and every option and it memorized. Is it, is it dash V or dash dash V or uh, anything like that? And, and hiring managers love to hear that, but it's when you got into the technical interviews that you got those, well, what, how do you count the number of files? It's like, I went over this in the last interview that I don't have that stuff memorized. The, the, the three times a year I need to do that. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll go search my Google history and, and see when I did it last or, or find that blog post I wrote that I, where I had to do it before. Honestly, that's, that's why I started blogging is to, uh, to, to cache some of that knowledge. I'm like, you know, this has come up like every four months, which is like, Definitely long enough for me to forget, 
that I did it and figured it out, you know, or, or the specific way, but it's, it's still, you know, just long enough to remember that I, you know, that I did it once, you know, <laughs> um, and, and sometimes, you know, it came up, you know, where I'd like, you know, Google something and then, you know, a blog post that I wrote, you know, that I had no recollection of writing. That's such a crazy feeling to have that happen to you. <laughs> like, I, I thought I ran into this before. I don't, I don't know. Let me let me put the error message in there. First result. Oh, hey, look at that. I did run into it before. And I figured out how to fix it. Yeah, it is. It is a good way to, I think, um, also, you know, give back a little bit, which is, you know, something that you mentioned earlier. And it, it actually, you know, inspires me to ask this question, like, you know, how it, it sounds like, you know, early on, you caught on with places that were willing to teach you, you know, did you still have that passion to like teach other people as you kind of progressed? Yeah, I struggled for a while trying to figure out outside of the formal classroom how to give back. The The forums of sort of the early 2000s were a great place to get answers, but when you saw a question, there was or 15 people gave the exact same answer already. So it was, I never really got engaged on the forum side because by the time I would get there in between working or or other activities and you'd, you'd log in and it's like, well, there's no new questions to answer now because, you know, there's so, clearly somebody here hitting the refresh button just waiting for new questions so that they can get the first answer in. I'm not going to uh, regurgitate what was already said by, you know, handful of other people. So when blogging started to take off, that was for me a way to uh, give back uh, to others based on what I was trying to learn, where I was having trouble with something, um, helped me personally also just with my writing and my ability to uh, write good documentation. So if I wrote a blog post on how I did something and went back to it a few weeks or months later when I hit that problem again, I could see all sort of the gaps it's like, oh, I, I didn't. I, I didn't start early enough in the process, so now I've got to remember maybe those first four or five steps on how I got to the solution or wasn't clear enough on this example here uh, on how I solved that problem. So it helped me also evolve my writing over time to uh, to a point now where I think I do pretty good technical documentation. Did you actually enjoy the process of writing? Because that's a little bit different than maybe giving a, a classroom presentation slash lecture or lesson. I mean, you, sure, you got to develop the curriculum, but uh, the writing process, I'm curious about that. It, I definitely didn't not like it as a roundabout way to answer that question. It, it, uh, it felt natural in terms of trying to teach when you, when when I would think of my blog as a as a way to to help teach other people, so writing was just the medium in which I could do that through. So it didn't, you know, it wasn't good or bad. I think it just was was the way that I was able to connect with other people at that point. But it's certainly something you have to you have to work on uh, and get better at. Like I said uh, before, you know, I would go back to old blog posts and I'd be like, wow, that. That really was not good. Uh, let me clean that one up and, and it would help me improve on my next blog post and so on. Uh, but it can certainly become 
it can become tedious and it's happened to me on a couple of different activities that I, that I've enjoyed over, over my uh, adult life where, you know, at first it's a hobby. Blogging was a hobby. It was a way to give back. It was a way to teach people. And it was like, Oh, Hey, somebody wants to pay me money to put their banner on my blog. That's super cool. Let me do that. And, you know, then a couple more ask and, you know, the money's great. And that was, that was awesome. And I'll just keep writing. And then all of a sudden you're getting emails. It's like, Hey, we're not getting the click through rate this month that we thought we were going to get. You didn't write enough blog posts. And it's like, Whoa, Hey, wait a second. This is a job now. This is, you came to me to put your ad on my blog, not the other way around. Like you get what you get. And when it started to become work, that's when, uh, that's when I started to get away really from blogging, you know, as a hobby. I can totally understand that. Um, Actually, I can't because nobody's ever wanted to pay me to to write um, a blog, but um, I think I can empathize with it. <laughs> it was a good run for a couple of years. It, it took my uh, kid to Disney, so you know, won't complain complain about it. It, it opened up some doors, certainly. Uh, I think that my writing and blogging helped me break down that barrier from being at smaller companies to being able to get into EMC. So even though I didn't have, you know, I was never at a company over 500 people, you know, so going from a small company like that into an EMC size company, uh, my, was my writing experience because I was going to be super focused on, uh, writing in the role that I was going into. So, you know, it can certainly help open doors, not just financially, but also uh, in terms of career path too. I mean, that's a, that's a really terrific point because you, I guess you kind of pose the problem, right? How do you break into a large company when you only have experience at small companies? And, um, and now you've answered it, right? You, you build a portfolio of work that people can't ignore, I guess, is, is kind of what we're saying, right? Yeah, so the uh the 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 writing examples for me is what helped get me in. Uh I had enough experience on like the technology side, but it's also a way to make a shift. Maybe you're in a desktop support role or or sysadmin role today and you want to get into Python or you want to get into Kubernetes. A, a great way to do that is to to blog and show that experience that you've gained, maybe not necessarily at work as your primary job function, but at some point, the experience that you're going to get from blogging about it, writing about it, doing presentations on it will give you the enough skills and enough experience to walk into that next interview. And when they ask you how to count the number of files in a directory, you've, you've done it enough times troubleshooting your, uh, your Kubernetes cluster to, to, to make that, to answer that question. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned you kind of backed off of the blogging because it became a job, but then you actually went into a role that required you to do a lot of writing. So mm -hmm. I'm curious about the irony there. You know, did that feel less like work and did you have to pick up some other hobby to fill the gap? I had, so when I joined EMC, I was pretty active in blogging and was able to continue doing that for my first couple of years. And my, I think both played off of each other. So what I was blogging about was ancillary to what my job function was at EMC to write about, but I could then play off of those two things for each. So 
what I was writing about for EMC in terms of like VMware setup configuration, vRealize automation, those things, I could then take that base layer that I was doing for EMC and it's like, okay, now I want to focus on how do I actually do something with my application once I've configured all of those things. So that's where the direction my blog went uh, when I joined EMC. And then I could come back and when I was teaching or when we were doing labs at work, I could say, oh, well, I know how to stand this application up using vRealize automation. So once we've deployed it in, in class and in a lab, now I can take, you know, WordPress or whatever other app we want to demo and I know how to fit that back in to uh, into the lab and make that work. So they 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 helped one another for a while. In that role, it was a little bit of an it was a little bit more of that education type role, similar to maybe your experience as a professor before. Did you have to change your approach at all because of the student base, the the way you might deliver the content? So I think what EMC helped me bring together was bits and pieces of project management that I had learned prior to uh, going in there in terms of how do I collect requirements? How do I understand who my audience is? What are the types of questions that I need to ask so that I can put the right content into the course or into the lab or teach based on what where the students are coming from? So that, I think, really helped me tie together a lot of project management things that maybe I, I sort of kind of did, but not really, um, in order to say, okay, this is how we're going to build this class based on this is the audience you're telling me that's coming in. It's uh, their their engineers that are deploying, or their sysadmins who are going to be running on day day two. What are the challenges that they're having? What's the you know what's the position of the solution that we're building the training for, so that we can cover those topics in a way that is relevant to the person racking and stacking the solution, or the person that's going to pick it up and then integrate their app and their network uh, with it with it once it's up and running. The the cool thing about that EMC role is because we were writing the labs and the training, we still had to maintain a fairly large compute environment in order to test those things out and really sort of pushed what was known about how to do nested virtualization and get things up. So we were running VMware on our physical hardware you know, we had maybe 30 or 40 blades, which, by the way, was the biggest environment I had ever been in coming out of, you know, a couple hundred person companies. So it was already experience, a uh, good experience for me because nothing was that uh, I hadn't maintained anything that big. But then we also needed to be able to mimic that same physical environment virtually. So we were, you know, we had in, in some cases two or three levels deep of, of you know, nested ESXi servers running, you know, VRA running on a nested ESXi server in a nested NSX environment that was on Cisco UCS with Ace. So we were, you know, a lot of the stuff we were doing definitely not supported, but it really made you, gave you the opportunity to figure some cool things out. So that uh, even though I was focused on training the amount of work we had to do to maintain the environments and get those things working kept me hands-on enough to be uh you know to not lose my technical edge it sounds like the perfect pair right there I... and i wasn't on call which 
cut the job I was coming out of, I was basically on call every other week for a year. So I had had enough of that. It took me a took me a solid year to not hate the Hangouts ringtone because that's what I used for uh, my pager duty alerts. And there were times I was at EMC. I was six months removed from my last job. And I had my ringer turned up and the, the Hangouts uh, tone would go off because somebody sent me a message and I could just, everything sank. I just was like, oh no, not again. And I was like, wait, I'm not on call. Okay, this is somebody that actually wants to talk to me. How'd you find out about that role at EMC? Was it through your professional network or were you just looking on their website? That act, they, they found me. So that was a recruiter, found my profile on LinkedIn. I had actually, the day they contacted me, I had just accepted an offer at another company to go be an SE. But I knew one of the things I knew I wanted to do career-wise was to get into that super giant company. So I would learn whatever the secret handshake was to get into the next super giant company when I needed to get into it later on. And, uh, you know, the recruiter called me up and was like, Hey, you know, we really, you know, like your background, want to talk to you. I was like, listen, I just verbally accepted an offer. I'm waiting on the paperwork now. So like, I want to work at EMC. Like you're my number one, you know, you're one B in my world right now. You know, if I can't go work for VMware and if I can go work for EMC, you know, just as good. So like, we need to like move if you want to do this. And they blew up. It was, I thought I had no shot. They blew up every process they had to hire me. They were like, can you come in next? Uh, can you come in in two weeks? I was like, no, I'm literally getting my written offer on Friday. Like I can come in Monday and throw everybody at me on Monday. And I was in a room with six people for two hours on Monday and they made me a job offer so that I could actually, they got me my offer before my two weeks had even expired from my last job. That's incredible. Now, what was it about your profile that they were really interested in? I assume the blogging part was there, but I think there was something else. There had to be another aspect to this, right? Yeah. So the environment I was coming out of was very similar to what we were running in the education services team. So it was Cisco UCS and EMC storage and VMware. And that was the base for everything that we were doing on that team at the time. So I think I had just enough of the keywords in my profile that when the recruiter typed in all the keywords on LinkedIn, I was, uh, you know, I popped up. struck me about that was the discussion about pushing technology uh, that Jonathan had the opportunity to do at EMC to just go, you know, deep nested virtualization in a way that probably nobody else was doing, you know, before or maybe even now. Um, that's just an opportunity you have at a larger company to do, you know, in an in a organized way, you know, a, a way that, uh, you know, the company is actually you know, um, asking you to do as opposed to something that you're just doing on your own in a lab. Right. It was more than just a tinkering exercise. And like he said, it was a way to keep those technical chops sharp so that if he wanted to go back and do something more technically focused and less education focused later, he could. And if we go back even a little bit, 
there's that challenge I think a lot of people face when going from a smaller mid-sized company to a big company like EMC and not maybe having the experience with an environment at that scale. And that's something, you know, how do I prove to someone that I can handle it and do a good job with that when I've only had experience, you know, at a scale that's much smaller? And I love the fact that Jonathan had to tell hiring managers he was not a walking Linux man page. That's great. Yeah, that was uh, pretty funny. The ability and foresight to, like, uh, and I guess just the, the guts to push back on a recruiter on that. How about the the uh, the accelerated recruitment, though? Yeah, that was interesting. You know, saying you're about to start this job and then out of nowhere comes an opportunity for a company you've wanted to work for for a long time. Apparently, he had had the resume formatted the right way, the right keywords on LinkedIn for someone to say, hey, Jonathan, we think you have the right skills to do this job. And he ended up flying through the recruiting process and and getting into EMC, which is one of the things he had wanted. So just a great story on, on how that happened. I, I know we didn't dig into how he resigned from the one he had already accepted, but I'm sure that was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Maybe something we could come back and talk to him about a little bit later, like that process of, uh, getting recruited and then having to walk away from, from that opportunity. Um, anything else before we get out of here? I'm, I'm looking forward to next week's episode. I don't think so. I, too, am excited about the sequel, John, as usual. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.